0: So, well, yes. I'm laying my cards on the table.
1: Oh, what kind of cards? Are these like magic cards, Yu Gi Oh cards, playing cards, uh, tarot? I don't know. What are we doing here?
0: Business cards. Ooh. And it's not a table, it's a desk. <gasps> because I want to ask you in this movie, Demi Moore has maybe the most absurd office I've seen
1: in a long time in a movie. So, wait, you're talking about her office specifically, not like the building.
0: Yes, her office specifically. Even the layout of that office building in general
1: doesn't make sense, because
0: there's, like, a beam in the
1: middle of her office. I mean, the whole vibe is something that would become much trendier in the 21st century, which is, like, factory converted into office. Right. But the rest of the
0: office vibe is very different. The beam going through, like, the middle of the room is really what threw me off. And I was wondering, what are some of your favorite ridiculous
1: office setups in movies? So I, I was thinking more, like, whole offices. And I wanted to just take a moment to note that I like the office in this movie, not because it makes any sense, but because it's fun specifically for the purposes of this movie. That for a movie all about, like, being observed and that feeling of, like, unsettling being watched, I think this sort of rear window glass all over the place, looking across the place, works very well and is cool. I agree.
0: I mostly am just confused by the actual shape because the distance of her desk from the door
1: is just so far. Large parts of that are an actual building. They shot the movie on location in Seattle. I'm like, there is a building that is the office from Disclosure.
0: I also feel that we live and work in a post-open floor plan world. Thank goodness. Like, the concept of an office has changed. And I have yet to see one nearly as big as a movie from, like, the 90s to
1: 2000s in person, (laughs) even for CEOs. But, like, thinking about, like, big office layouts, the first one I thought of was, of course, the sales floor from the apartment. Oh, my God. The most depressing office I've seen in a long time. But I'm choosing to engage with it literally as it was shot and not as it appears in the movie, which is a room full of progressively smaller desks and progressively shorter people until there are children in the far distance. And I think that, in reality, would be the weirdest office. I mean,
0: children seem to be going back to the workplace, so we might as well get them crunching actuarial numbers.
1: Children yearn <laughs> for the stock market.
0: them crunching those numbers. That office is my fear. If I had a nightmare of what working would look like, it is that.
1: Yeah, which is very much like the stereotype of the mid-century office.
0: Yeah, I've never had a regular office job where I've gone into an office
1: every day, so I also have a general fear of offices. So if I could then take us to the 21st century, another very silly office, as far as I'm concerned, in a converted factory, no less, is the office from Nancy Meyers' film The Intern. I was wondering if you were going to say that. A movie I haven't seen, and yet somehow I knew you were going to mention it. Okay, here's the thing. First of all, The Intern, kind of good. And it made money, and it's crazy that Nancy Myers hasn't been able to get a movie made since. And it's especially crazy that, I don't know if you know this, Mark, but Netflix had agreed to make a Nancy Myers movie. It was cast, it was getting underway, and then they pulled out, as it was going into production... Because they wouldn't agree to the $130 million budget. They wanted one hundred and twenty. million. And now, I know you're thinking $130 million for a Nancy Myers movie sounds like a lot of money. Yes, I am thinking that. Counterpoint. Number one, Netflix has all the money. Who cares? The thing is, they kind of don't anymore. (laughs) Fine. The other thing is, all Netflix movies cost more than you think. And the reason is their business model. Because there's no theatrical, because there's no home video, there are no residuals. So everybody involved gets paid a lot more on a Netflix movie than they would if it was going theatrically. Like, white noise cost like $100 million. I think more. Oh my god. And that movie had no business costing that amount of money. But because it was for Netflix, that's what it was. And I think it's appropriate for this movie as we talk about double standards with gender. Like, no one complains when I know a Noah Baumbach movie costs that much. But Nancy Myers should have had her shake.
0: I mean, it also plays into Netflix pulling out, is what made it a news story. But the fact that they pulled out of the Nancy Myers one is suspicious. Also, maybe White Noise is the reason that
1: (laughs) Netflix pulled out of this movie. Yeah, I don't think so, though, because it took like four months after White Noise opened for that to happen. Yeah, Netflix is
0: floundering and struggling and... They make the weirdest decisions.
1: They make extremely weird decisions.
0: This is, uh, this is Apple's year. I think that Apple is just well-suited for the streaming wars because they're not bleeding venture capitalists' money. They're bleeding their own money on vanity projects.
1: Right. They actually have infinite money, but unlike Amazon, they're good at marketing?
0: Yes. I haven't watched a Prime show in a long time. I feel like they're slouching on the prime shows.
1: Well, you are one of the 37% of people who made it to the end of Rings of Power. Uh did I? <laughs> or didn't you? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> not even you. I know, but
0: that's also uh if I get distracted from a show, I'm not good at returning to the show. Wow. And something more exciting came out and it, I was enjoying it. But then I also saw a spoiler of who Sauron was and I was like, well I guess that's all I know. You're part of the 63%. I am. The thing is, I kind of predicted everything, and then I saw spoilers, and I was just right. So. But
1: yeah, so I mean, Apple this year has maybe my two most anticipated movies. So I'm all in on Apple for this year. Which two? They've got Killers of the Flower Moon. Okay. And they've got Ridley Scott's Napoleon.
0: Neither of those are Barbie. So I can't say my top two. But
1: I said two of them. Okay. My biggest theatrical day this year is the Oppenheimer Barbie Day.
0: I know. I'm wondering if I do a double feature.
1: Have you seen the Oppenheimer trailer? It's pretty great.
0: No, not yet. But I did 40. see the edited Barbie character poster of Oppenheimer as a Ken. Oh, said, I didn't see that. I love this. That. Ken's the bomb. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, it's good. We're, we are feasting this year.
0: The Barbie character posters came out like the day before we're recording. And boy, are they amazing. And all of the jokes are funny. Yeah, they knew what they were doing when they made a generator.
1: Oh, yeah. This movie's advertising game is very strong. I can't wait to see it. Um. Anyway, the office in Nancy Meyers' 2015 film <laughs> The Intern is big, but it's not so big that Anne Hathaway, in her 30s, I think, should be riding around it on a bicycle. So I guess that's not that The Office is weirdly laid out so much as She's weird in it. <laughs> yeah. Anne Hathaway's 33 when that movie comes out, and she is riding down, and, you know, not the world's shortest hallways, but on a bicycle and in an office where conspicuously there's, like, a lot of stuff in the way, like boxes of clothes. The bike has to be slower than walking. <laughs> and I like to think that I am probably this podcast's biggest advocate of cycling.
0: Didn't they ban the scooters
1: at Google that that's riffing off of? Probably. Google was gonna be one of my other answers because the Google office in the film The Internship, not to be confused with the intern, is also weird and dumb.
0: I've been to the Google office in Switzerland, and they had the scooters when I was there. It was very odd. Of course, the office I'm thinking of though, just to pivot back to weird offices.
1: I just assume it's gonna be like Mr. Krab's office.
0: Uh no, it's Max Shrek's office from Batman Returns.
1: <laughs> A great answer.
0: Because it is designed for giants. I mean that's what's great about it. I know. It's incredible. It's the only movie where I'm like the office is the correct size
1: large. I'm sure there's like a ridiculous one in Skyscraper. Um I'm trying to remember. Should we rewatch Skyscraper? I think probably no. Probably not. I don't think we'd catch the high. No, we should maybe do another like one of the allegedly good rock movies. Which ones are the good ones? I don't know. Pain and Gain? I don't even think I've heard of that one. Sure. The Scorpion King? <laughs> the Scorpion King.
0: We should cover the Scorpion King, though. I've never seen it. Me neither. All I know is the CGI is terrible. And that sounds up our alley. Maybe we bring Melissa back and we go the Scorpion <laughs> King. <laughs> When we first ask
1: and get her to agree, tell her we're doing Mummy 2. I was going to say, we should say, Melissa, we want to return to our Mummy coverage. Really lay it on thick. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Um, Coming soon to this podcast. (laughs) By soon, we mean like within the next
0: two years. Yeah. At some point, we will remember to put it on the schedule. The Scorpion King. But for now... Let's get started on this week's movie, because
1: I think we both have a lot to discuss. (laughs) Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very least important question facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense?
0: And are these people actually dateable? And also, why does Michael
1: Douglas look so bad? This is the worst he's ever looked. (laughs) Like, we just need to stop because, like, Michael Douglas has continued to work. I saw him in Ant-Man 3 not that long ago, and he looks better in that than he does in this.
0: It must be a choice, and it's a choice we'll discuss. But it's, it's bizarre, because he has no charisma in this
1: movie. Which, again, I think it's a choice. And he's not, he's not a vacuum. Like, I'm picking up something from him that I think is an interesting choice.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's still Michael Douglas. Like, he knows how to act. Which is why I think it's a choice, but he is so much less compelling than
1: usual. This is not an American president, Michael Douglas, where it's just, like, working off of his magnetism.
0: It's not even a Romancing the Stone, Michael Douglas.
1: But, like, Romancing the Stone is, is a more sad sack performance.
0: Yeah, and yet he's still more attractive.
1: Um, it doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are, of course, talking about Barry Levinson's 1994 sexual harassment thriller, Disclosure.
0: A movie that dares to ask, what if men were harassed sexually in The Office Place?
1: So we're going to have to talk a lot about Michael Crichton on this episode because Michael Crichton is a producer on this movie and wrote the novel that it's based on. And I did not read this novel. This is not a Congo situation. But at the end of the book, there's like an author's note where he first off says that this is inspired by a real thing that happened to a friend of his in 1988. And then he also contends that while he knows most sexual harassment incidents are men harassing women, he's arguing there is some value to be had in the gender reversal because it helps highlight the particulars of the behaviors in a way that the audience wouldn't necessarily pick up on if it were the story they expected. And while I think we're going to hear a lot of terrible opinions from Michael Crichton on this episode, I think there is something there.
0: I think, like, it it is possible that his friend had this experience, but this movie just smells so strongly of women in the workplace has gone too far and we need to take a step back.
1: Okay, do you want to start with this? Yeah, I think we, like, we just have to get it off the table. Okay, so, broadly speaking, the movie is about Michael Douglas as... A long-time guy at a tech company. He's in charge of like the manufacturing of the actual physical equipment. His old lover, Demi Moore, sort of swoops in out of nowhere and gets a promotion that he was expecting. She's now his boss. She harasses him. They've had a previous sexual relationship, right? So now she harasses him, sexually assaults him. The movie is about sort of a he said she said of what went down and who did the wrong thing. So I think it is easy to perceive this movie off the bat of, like, of what you're saying. Of, like, yes. Like, this is just, like, women have gone too far. This is an issue. And I might be coming at this a little bit differently from you because I've read about the book, which is exactly what you're describing. I did read a
0: very interesting article about how this movie somehow made the book
1: less awful. Did you read the, the Nathan Rabin piece of the Dissolve?
0: I think so, yeah.
1: Which is a good piece. That's the one where he talks a lot about how, in the sex scene in the book, I mean, assault scene in the book, there's a passing reference to her tush, and yes. Nathan Rabin, formerly of the A.V. Club, just like couldn't get past this word tush being used in that context.
0: I mean, I do think, even before we get deeper into it, it's worth noting that Disclosure was his follow-up to the book Rising Sun, which is a racist murder mystery novel that asks the very bold question... Are Japanese people bad, and should we kick them out of America?
1: A book, I haven't seen the movie, but a book that is also weirdly very horny. Everything he writes is horny, except Jurassic Park. There's a turning point, right? Because, like, the Andromeda strain doesn't have sex scenes in it. Yeah, I guess he had a brief run of horniness, and it did taper off. I mean, it's there all the way through some of the posthumous books. Like, Pirate Latitudes had some weird sex stuff in it. Did it really? Oh, yeah. Ugh. I read the Rising Sun book, and... Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's one where, like, based on my memory of reading it when I was, like, 14, I found it to be, like, pretty compelling corporate thriller, but super racist.
0: I know. I was picking up on, like, I don't think you can speak about Japanese people this way as a middle schooler in Georgia. In the Bush administration. In the Bush administration. And I was like, I don't think you can say all Japanese people are conniving little monsters.
1: So... Like I said, uh, Crichton claimed this was based on uh, a real story about a friend in 1988. According to some statistics that I found in the LA Times, around the time of the book's publication in 1993, something like 9% of sexual harassment claims were made by men. So, not none, but very much not the majority. Anyway, the LA Times got a pretty extensive interview with him that's going to go up on our Twitter page, I think on the Wednesday after this episode comes out. And it's worth a read, because it's a wild ride. But Crichton's core idea basically seems to be that sex and gender are much less influential in terms of how people think and behave than hierarchy and power are. And Crichton's contending that basically the main driver of how people behave is how much power they have over other people. And so his argument is that if you put more women in positions of power, he does somewhere in the interview say, like, actually what you need is to have, like, a bunch of women in positions of power. Because if you just put one, then they still get drowned out. And it's like, Michael Crichton, you're picking up on something here. But he also contends that it'll lead to an increase in men being sexually harassed because he believed the boss will always sexually harass people. Not all the time, but, like, it'll happen. And it doesn't matter what the gender of the boss is.
0: A position that, you know, like, I can kind of understand how you get there, but it ignores all the, you know, centuries of socialization that is built into how Americans view women. Yeah. That they receive as children.
1: Yes. And part of the thing with Crichton is he really seems to be rejecting... Like, for starters, he's rejecting the notion of any difference between men and women and the way they're socialized and the way they engage. And he's got a very sort of knee-jerk 90s attitude of everyone should just be chill and stop worrying about being politically correct and not worry so much about all these identities. So at one point in here, he... Claims that women have twisted modern feminism into a doctrine of special privilege, polluting relations between the sexes and putting everyone on edge. At another point, he says, you can't make any kind of a joke at work.
0: How are we having these exact same conversations?
1: As soon as I heard him say that, I was like, I feel like I've felt this whole thing building. You can't make any kind of joke at work. You can't make any kind of personal comment. And the whole thing has a little neo-Nazi flavor. It's the thought police and people are unhappy. They're not going to put up with
0: it. Oh my god. It's so disgusting how little progress we've made while people think we've made so much progress.
1: Yeah, and like, I will give credit, the interviewer at the LA Times was pushing back on what he had to say. But, you know, Michael Crichton was like a seven-foot-tall climate change denier who was very certain of what he knew was right.
0: We've all seemed to forgotten that Henry Cavill said these exact same comments, but I remember.
1: Henry Cavill framed it... De- Henry Cavill was not saying what Michael Crichton was saying.
0: No, but he did make the, like, joke about
1: you can't even flirt anymore these days. Yes, I think the, co- the full context of that quote is very different than what Michael Crichton is saying here.
0: Well, yeah, Michael Crichton is also it's just
1: so awful. Yeah. Michael I Crichton. I did is- not know he was seven feet tall. He's not seven feet tall. He's, like, six foot five. (laughs) Even still. He's, like, shockingly tall.
0: I did not know he had tall man, like, tall man disease. Six
1: five wives! Okay, he was six foot nine. Who is this man? He was a weird dude. He created ER. Wow. I don't think we talk about him enough. He was a weird
0: dude. One of his pen names was Michael Douglas. I didn't know that. That's just off of
1: Wikipedia, which is objectively hilarious. So... The movie obviously is adapted from Crichton's book, and by all accounts, from stuff I read from that Nathan Rabin piece, the book is much more clear-cut of the Michael Douglas character is this virtuous man who is taken advantage of by an evil woman with perfect breasts. <laughs> I thing that seems to come up a lot in the book. Yeah. The movie, I think, complicates that, interestingly, for starters, by going through... A very consistent effort, but not too ham-handed an effort, I didn't think. Especially for a movie from 1994, when the whole conversation about sexual harassment is still relatively new. And I think it does a good job of establishing that, like, this is actually a sexist work environment before Demi Moore shows up. That we do have the shots of Michael Douglas, like, smacking his assistant on the behind, and some of the jokes that the guys are throwing around in the office. Like, there are a lot of people here who could credibly be filing sexual harassment claims.
0: Yeah, it's, you know... The point is the scale changes and that becomes the crisis, but it is not good. He's not a good guy either,
1: which I think makes him kind of interesting that like he is right in this case, but he is not a perfect hero, which is something we talk about a lot with stuff like sexual assault, which is that like, there's always this like, oh, is this a perfect victim or not?
0: Yeah. And I prefer that he's not a perfect victim. Compared to the book. Because I'm glad we read that same article. Because it is shaping a lot of what I'm thinking
1: about the movie. It's a good piece. It was very interesting. Nathan Rabin's always great. So the script is adapted by Paul Adonazio. Who got an Oscar nomination this same year for Quiz Show. Mark, are you a Quiz Show guy? Or are you a Quizniac? I don't know what that is. It rules. It's based on this like great TV scandal of the 1950s. Where one of the earliest TV Quiz Shows. Like, this scandal came out that they had been rigging the games and, like, giving answers to this guy who was this really charismatic winner because the audience loved him. I have heard about that scandal.
0: Yeah. But now I'm
1: intrigued about uh, adaptation. The movie's great. It's directed by Robert Redford. John Turturro plays the guy who figures out this is going on. Ray Fiennes is the, like, handsome champion of the show. How have I not heard of this movie? It rules! In addition to writing the script for a Quiz Show, Paul Ananasio also co-created Homicide: Life on the Street, House, and your favorite show, Mark Bull. Uh, Bull is an objectively hilarious TV show to use as a punchline to a joke. The six-season CBS procedural inspired by the life of Dr. Phil. It got six seasons. It got six seasons. What a and world. it didn't end because of ratings. It ended because of. Sexual harassment lawsuits. Yes, I did know that. It's wild that there's like a whole world of
0: TV that you and I are just not in. And it's all watched much more by anything we do. Yes. I don't, It's so weird to think about just the amount of people that watch reruns of NCIS versus any good or not. I won't well, say good. <laughs> I, uh, NCIS, I think, is it? Honestly, not the
1: worst of it. This is why I gotta watch Survivor, to keep my finger on the pulse.
0: Yeah.
1: D- and by that, I don't mean everyone's watching Survivor. I mean, by watching Survivor, I see the promos for young Sheldon.
0: Yeah, you uh, at least dip your toe into the CBS-averse. Right.
1: What were we talking about? I don't know. Uh, we are talking about uh, the 1994 film Disclosure, <laughs> <laughs> written by Paul Adonazio, based on the novel by Michael Crichton, and directed, of course, by Academy Award winner Barry Levinson, who we talked about for Rain Man. But at this point was coming off of a couple of flops, most notably toys. So this is kind of Levinson's attempt to just, like, get a hit and get back on the right foot. Was this a hit? Yeah, not a gigantic hit. I feel like this movie exists as an afterthought to Fatal Attraction. I mean, part of it is just, like, it's one of a bunch of Michael Douglas sexy thrillers, Like, right? He is kind of the avatar of this whole genre, where he has Fatal Attraction in, I think, 87, but... He's also got Basic Instinct in 92, he's got this. You know, even something like The Game it doesn't have the sexiness, but still kind of feels like the same sort of Michael Douglas. Yeah, it's very interesting niche he worked into. Yeah, he was kind of the, the star of the sexy thriller genre, which was in its heyday at this point. You know, we're recording this as the, you must remember, this erotic 90s series is getting underway, And I'm certain that there will be an episode about Disclosure. Absolutely. I'm very excited now that I've seen this movie. I mean, this is why we put it on the schedule, so that we would have watched something that she'll cover.
0: Well, we've already seen one.
1: Indecent Proposal. That's why we put that on the schedule. And, um,
0: Pretty Woman, which kicked off the series.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, tune into our episode five years ago for that. Yeah, wow. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. Um... I don't know, Mark, I feel like we've been talking around this, but how did you feel about Disclosure? Um, I
0: was so excited when the climax of this movie was Michael Douglas putting on a VR suit, <laughs> walking down a hallway, opening a file cabinet in VR as a creepy avatar of Demi Moore started aggressively... <laughs>
1: deleting files <laughs> and just lurking in the background <laughs> behind him in the background. I got to say, I think I liked this movie quite a bit more than you did, but I also just giggled for that entire. I sequence. Was the climactic, it. the climactic virtual reality sequence is just incredibly funny. There's this line in Roger Ebert's review of the movie where he says, there's a lot of computer stuff in the movie, which makes us feel clever. Unless we know anything about computers, in which case it makes the movie feel dumb.
0: It has the most, convoluted corporate sabotage-ish plot that I have ever heard.
1: But the whole software that they're all fighting over is just file storage, right? It's Windows Explorer. The VR thing is literally the thing from season six of Community. Oh my God, Uh, the
0: only thing I could think about. It was (laughs) clearly inspired by this.
1: Picking up the file and moving it around. I was thinking about it in this, at least the Community season aired in 2015. In this, for Demi Moore and Michael Douglas to be interacting with each other at that speed, they're doing this over dial-up.
0: That's the most baffling part of it all. Deleting a file
1: should have taken, like, two minutes alone. You think about the amount of business they're doing via video chat and how clunky that would be.
0: I guess, I mean, it is good at showing how technologically advanced this company is. but it's supposed to be cutting edge. It's such a basic product.
1: (laughs) Right, but like the New York Times review talked about like, wow, it is like all this sexy technology. Like cell phones the size of credit cards and CD-ROM players that can store 600 books. And it's funny to read that in juxtaposition with the Ebert review, where the Times guy is like, look at all this. And Ebert's like, dumb!
0: It's so funny to me that the VR isn't even the technology that they're fighting over. It's just there. Like, it was just there for a demonstration, and for some reason, that's the only way he can hack into the mainframe. It feels like they're completely missing the point. <laughs> it's so funny. Honestly, that sequence alone raised my esteem of this movie dramatically, because it was so absurd I don't think you can conceptualize how funny this is as he's like sweating because this is the climax of the movie this is how he's gonna save the day
1: I do think they do a good job of like playing it straight they do but that's what made me giggle even harder they honor the intensity of it you've got Ennio Morricone just like waterfall music going
0: (laughs) he is acting Michael Douglas he is going for it and the fact that he is able to perform in such absurd conditions I respect it cuz he is having to just stand there with like weird VR technology that is fake because I doubt they have a working VR system. And no just, this was like, all wild around.
1: This was all ILM. He's just doing nothing. Yeah. But like that's what gets you the Oscar.
0: And he sells it but it's so funny.
1: Michael Douglas did not get an Oscar for this movie. He yes, got an Oscar I, for Wall Street. I, I am aware. While we're talking about technology, we should note this was a cutting-edge movie because it was the first movie to have a multimedia press kit. All the press materials were delivered via floppy disk.
0: Whoa. Future. Yeah. Not
1: CD. <laughs> no, not CD. A little early for that. Well, that's what they're making in the movie. Very Wait, right, but they're doing cutting-edge technology. Yeah, it's I not know. ready yet.
0: The use of Malaysia also I found really funny. Just, like, choosing Malaysia as the country where all this stuff is being made.
1: Yeah, I mean, but that's the sense in the 90s, right? Wow, everything's made in Taiwan now.
0: Yeah. Also that the only people they, like, talk to in Malaysia are white people.
1: Well, he does talk to Muhammad over the phone. Oh, he does, yes. What a weird movie this is. I think I enjoyed it more than you did. I found it to be, like, like I said, much more nuanced than I expected from it.
0: It was definitely more nuanced than I was expecting.
1: It's not reaching the highs of, like, the best of the period. Like, I'll always pick Basic Instinct over Disclosure. But, you know, it's it works. It's a good little thriller. And even in its silliness, it's committed to it. And I had a good time. I don't know what to say. It's great. It's not great, but it's good.
0: To me, more is compelling and not, like, I mean comically like, evil.
1: She is, but she's also, like, playing that really well, right? Like, she gets the... To use the cliche, she gets the assignment.
0: That's what I mean. It's like, it sounds like in the book, there's no... Like, in this movie, she has no redeeming qualities. Besides a good actress, I guess. But, you know, she's compelling. And she's giving... She is. Giving the role what it needs. I think it works because of how attractive she is, too. Oh, absolutely. It depends on that. Yeah. Which I don't mean as a knock. Because otherwise, you know... If she wasn't attractive, people would believe, like, I think people would be more willing to believe that it was non-consensual.
1: Right. It relies a little bit on the, like, well, yeah, of of course you would have sex with Demi Moore. Yeah. Like, uh, any man would. And she, in her performance, weaponizes that so well. And also in the ways that she changes her appearance at different points. Like, in the deposition when she has her hair pulled back versus when she has it down. It's all this, like, very well-considered presentation. She had just an incredible run, sort of at the peak of her fame in the 90s, going from Ghost to Nothing But Trouble, A Few Good Men, Indecent Proposal, Disclosure. Like She was hot. She was hot? In more ways
0: than one. Well, yeah, she was... I will say, seeing the weird, creepy avatar of her did great. make me laugh, and I was a little
1: like thrown off by seeing her in person again after, because it's so weird. Here's the question my wife asked about that. So, Demi Moore, at that point, is not a full-body avatar because she's not in the VR system. She's just accessed it from a desktop. So, she's just, like, a sort of, like, wireframe body with a flat Her, like, like professional JPEG. headshot. Yeah. Why does her wireframe body have boobs? I guess you have to select a gender. I just think that, I just think that that feels, like, unnecessary... Programming, but I think this whole system is unnecessary <laughs> what,
0: what benefit does this bring?
1: Again, they've invented Windows Explorer, but more difficult.
0: If you had asked me what inspired the VR plotline in the season six of Community, I don't think Disclosure would have been top of my list of guesses.
1: But I think it
0: definitely is. I think it is a direct ripoff of this version because it even has the weird, like, almost classical design style. Yeah incredible
1: wow uh Demi moore unfortunately lost her mtv movie award for most desirable female she did not win despite her nomination
0: well that's probably good because
1: she's evil yeah she also lost best villain who won that year most desirable female was sandra bullock in speed okay and best villain was dennis hopper in speed was this a big year for speed it was a big speed year at the mtv movie <laughs> yeah. awards that doesn't surprise me. Demi Moore did win the first ever Blockbuster Entertainment Award for Favorite Actress in a Drama. Have you started your Wikipedia series for the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards? Please, the Blockbuster Entertainment Awards already have Wikipedia pages. Oh my God. Everyone, it's shocking how many awards se- shows there are. I'd just like to observe that the Disclosure Wikipedia page does not include either of those. I knew, intuitively, I knew that this movie would have nominations at both and then double checked. <laughs> Amazing. My brain knows when this is happening now. <laughs> You're really keyed into the MTV Academy. That's right. Um, the movie, like I said, did okay. It opened on December 9th, 1994 in first place with just $10 million. So it was a slow week at the box office. Ahead of the Santa Claus at number two, Drop Zone, Star Trek Generations, and of course Junior. It topped out at $83 million domestic and made another $129 million overseas against its $50 million budget. It was also, in 2004, adapted into a Bollywood movie called Itraz, with Priyanka Chopra in the Demi Moore role, which is great casting. Wow.
0: I would be curious about that movie. <laughs> yeah. Interesting to see this in a completely different cultural context. Yeah, I've, I've read that it's a fairly
1: loose adaptation. I would imagine. One interesting thing about the box office is not about the movie's box office itself, but just that Disclosure opened basically exactly one month after David Mamet's film adaptation of Oleana, which really just shows the extent to which sexual harassment was a topic of discussion in the culture at the time. That you'd have two wide-release movies a month apart, both tangling with the, like, he said, she said sexual harassment dynamic.
0: I mean, it's around the same time that even the concept of date rape is being litigated for the first time.
1: Right, I mean, the first guidelines on sexual harassment from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission came in 1980, but it's not until, I think, 1986 that the Supreme Court found that hierarchy in the workplace makes sexual advances inherently coercive, and it's after that decision that you start seeing a lot more sexual harassment claims being filed. And then, of course, the big turning point is the Anita Hill hearings in 1991.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was a moment that changed our nation and probably slash definitely for the worse.
1: Yes, but I would say for all that, it is good that it did a lot to highlight discussions of sexual harassment and what that looks like.
0: And it gave us some weird movies along the way.
1: (laughs) It gave us some weird movies along the way. It is funny trying to Google this now because there is the Netflix documentary Disclosure. Which is about trans representation in movies.
0: A great documentary.
1: A, a very good documentary. I
0: would say a superior film. I enjoyed this. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think one brings a lot more value to the world than
1: the other. Oh, of course it does. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, if you haven't seen Disclosure, sometimes Disclosure colon trans lives on screen. Good documentary. It's on Netflix. Uh, if you haven't seen Disclosure 1994, it's on HBO Max. It's pretty good. What a film. I think we should probably talk about the romance of this movie, which I have made the strong contention is not really related to Demi Moore because she's just an abuser. So we're mostly going to be talking about Michael Douglas's marriage.
0: The wife. Very much a wife.
1: And by the way, the wife that we're talking about here is Susan Sanders, wife of Michael Douglas's Tom Sanders. Susan Sanders is played by Caroline Goodall, who we've talked about before because she's the mom in The Princess Diaries. Oh. The, like, cool, arty mom.
0: Wow. Oh, I do want to quickly, before we get into the romance, I just want to shout out the one random quote-unquote good woman that works at the company who ends up taking to be Moore's job to yeah. show that this movie doesn't hate women. Which I don't think the book would have done. No, that is clearly an adaptational choice to tone down the vehemence of the book.
1: There's a moment in the movie where Dylan Baker as, like, the company's lawyer or something, says, I never even heard of such a thing, a woman harassing a man. What did she say?
0: Not to put too fine a point on it, she said you sexually harassed her. I sexually harassed her. What would you call it? Phil, she jumped me in her office. She jumped you? You're in denial. That's typical. She did everything That's short ty- of rape me, Phil. You need help, Tom. You have to accept responsibility. Oh, responsibility. What, what do you call this? What about that? Looks to me like she was forced to defend herself.
1: Defend herself? The woman's probably on a Stairmaster an hour a day. She can kick the shit out of both of us.
0: It may have seemed different to you at the I time. I did harass her, okay? She harassed me. I never even heard of such a
1: thing, a woman harassing a man. Something about that line, I can only hear it in my head, in the tone of Sarah Paulson and Down With Love. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Fair enough. Like, that is what that line sounds like to me.
0: And then the twist that, like, her son uses his sense. professor's email to send emails as a friend that
1: helped crack the case. Let's be clear. The reveal in this movie doesn't make sense. No. It doesn't make a lick of sense. Why does this college student know about what's happening in this company? Why does he really care? How is he sending emails with no sender? I guess the implication is that she's providing the information
0: for him to pass on so that she's not involved.
1: Yeah, it, it doesn't totally
0: hold together. Uh, no, it does not.
1: So, uh, every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to talk through the romance and I think point number one for Barry Levinson's disclosure has to start at the beginning of the movie with just Michael Douglas's married life at home in Seattle. What's daddy wearing around his
0: neck? This is a tie. Daddy's getting a promotion. He seems happy. He does. And he's trying to be a good dad.
1: We talked about how this is the worst Michael Douglas has ever looked. And I do think it is a performance choice in that the idea is just that, like, he is, like, a tech guy and not the most charismatic tech guy.
0: He's just kind of a guy.
1: A guy who likes his computers. And he does have, we're told, a vigorous sexual past. His wife makes a comment about, like, of course she's your old girlfriend. That's as exclusive as the white pages.
0: Great line.
1: But now he seems, like, very firmly settled into, like, you know, it's Seattle. So you think, like, like kind of like a Bill Gates character where he's not presenting as, like, a super, like, sexy hotshot. Although we know now Bill Gates, of course, a lot of sexual harassment going on there, too. Yeah. I mean, it's not, he's not. A Wall Street guy. Right, this is very different from Gordon Gecko.
0: Yeah, he's not, you know, the cutthroat businessman. He's just a guy who likes making computers and is late to work one day so he can help his wife take care of the kids.
1: Do we think Michael Douglas has instructed his daughter to print out his emails, or is that just a thing she does on her own?
0: I think that maybe he asked her to do it one
1: time and she has decided that it is her job, TM. Because this is what got Hillary Clinton in trouble. Uh, is that she always wanted her emails printed out. I
0: mean, people printing out emails is so, like, just stop if you're still printing out emails. I love the emails that now end with, please consider the environment before printing out this email. I haven't seen that. You haven't seen that? Some companies put it at the very bottom. It'd be funny if one of my students added that to their signature. I mean, I think it's going away because no one prints emails anymore. Yeah. It's a relic from a time where every email was printed. Back when email was, like, treated like mail.
1: Yeah, I feel like Donald Trump is a, a printout emails guy, too. Yes, but he rips everything up. That's the thing. And then the White House staff has to tape it back together. Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, he's just, like, trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good dad. Basically, like, his biggest problem, at least until we see him at the office engaged in casual sexism, uh, his biggest problem seems to be that he just kind of, like, works too hard at everything. Like, He especially works too hard at the office. There's a joke later in the movie that, like, even as his company is, like, throwing him under the bus, he's still like, ah, we gotta, like, crunch to get this project done. But even at home, he's, like, running late for work because he's like, I gotta help the kids. Which is good!
0: Yeah, that is nice. I mean, also, he is staying at work late, it seems, every night. So this seems to be his only time to be with his kids.
1: Yeah, his wife makes a comment, uh, Susan makes a comment, About how he's the only person she knows who sucks up to the people below him. Which, you know, to a certain degree, it's just like, treat your employees well? I mean, he doesn't. That's the thing. (laughs) Very quickly, we see him smacking Cindy on the ass with a folder.
0: He's kind of gross.
1: Which is, I think, a strength of the movie.
0: It is. But it's interesting to see a kind of gross guy be a good dad. Because usually in movies, that's not put together.
1: Being a good dad is the first thing to go. You have an otherwise good guy who's like, oh, I can't figure it out with my kids. I'm on my cell phone! Yeah, <laughs> that is so accurate. Uh,
0: my dad got in trouble for his cell phone a lot in the early 2000s. Before we had cell phones.
1: Yeah, I think the, like, scummy guy in a worse situation is just, like, an interesting thing. I, I've mentioned to you a couple of times, there was a movie at Sundance this year called Fair Play that's going to be on Netflix this year. That was produced by Ryan Johnson. And is very much trying to be a, like, what if we made these sexy thrillers again? And similarly is, like, two bad people in worse situations.
0: I do think that this is probably a more accurate depiction of a sexual harasser at work, though.
1: You're saying Michael Douglas.
0: Michael Douglas. I mean... He's obviously not to the extent of Demi Moore, but just, like, he is a nice guy who loves his family, but also at work slaps his employee on the ass.
1: Yeah, and I like that the movie establishes that, and also there's the great scene in the mediation where Cindy is brought in, and he is forced to reckon with the fact that, like, oh my gosh, like, I actually have been guilty of sexual harassment.
0: Yeah, and then, you
1: know, they make
0: up at the end, which I like, too.
1: I like that they make up, I don't love that she smacks him on the ass. Like, well, like, my goal is not everyone stopping <laughs> yeah. everyone.
0: It's one of those Isn't situations a where free-for-all like...
1: on tush pats is not what I'm going for. So, I was doing
0: research on uh, Jordan and Jordanian law for work, and there was a law that human rights proponents and feminists were protesting to change, where if a man caught his wife in bed, he could get a reduced sentence of up to, like, only like six months if he kills her and the man she's with and so they're protesting to get this law overturned and instead the Jordanian government is like in interest of equality because we believe in equality women now have the right to kill their husbands if they catch him in (laughs) bed with another woman
1: and everyone's a hilarious Jordanian solution the Jordanians are so good at finding equality in the wrong way it's so funny
0: I was, like, reading this horrible article about, like, the use of torture that this is thrown in, and even the authors are like, it's, this is kind of funny.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. Again, not a solution. We don't need a free-for-all on tushes. (laughs) I hate the word tush so much. All right, so that's our point number one, just setting the stage. Point number two is the harassment now with Meredith. Which I was
0: not expecting to happen day one.
1: No, the whole movie takes place over a week.
0: Yeah. Like a work week. Yeah, I was really not expecting her to start work and then send the like harassing
1: email immediately. Yeah. Day one, she sends him an email that says, uh, that says, what? Is your cock hard right now? She overhears the men are making rude jokes and talking about having hard ons for Meredith. Who we see, like, we see, like, body parts of her before we ever see her in full. We see, like, her legs. We see her from behind. I think she is introduced well to be objectified. She's introduced as the men in this movie are seeing her. And when we meet her fully, Donald Sutherland is, like, she's the one who saved the merger. She has already told Donald Sutherland that she has a sexual past with Michael Douglas. Seems like they actually, like, lived together for a while.
0: Yeah, it, it seems more than just, like, a fling. Yeah, this
1: was like a a relationship.
0: But, yeah, so they're making lewd jokes about her. She overhears and sends an unsigned email that's like, is your cock hard now, referencing the conversation. Yes. And then later, like, invites him into her office and makes a reference, like, telling him that she's the one that sent that. Because this is a movie where it's very easy to send senderless emails. Yeah, which is difficult now. I don't know how to do it. Maybe it was less difficult back then because spam email wasn't a thing. So you didn't need to worry about stuff like that as much.
1: Maybe. But she calls him up to the office sort of under the pretense of like, we've got this big merger coming up. Let's check in on each other with the status. And also like, let's catch up. And she pretty quickly, she like asks about his life. She's really pushy about like, being married and being a dad, she's like, oh, I bet that's a bummer. He's like, yeah, there's, like, stuff I don't get to do, but it's a trade-off, and there are, like, good trade-offs. And she's like, mm, trade-off sounds bad. Yeah.
0: And then, you know, it is shocking to me how quickly it escalates, too. I family, you That's know. exactly why I can trust you. You have a lot more to lose than I do.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's the moment where she... Early on, she's like, you know, that's why I can trust you. You have a lot more to lose than I do. And, like, starts taking off her jacket. She, like, tells him to rub her shoulders. And, like, it is really sort of beat for beat and line for line. Something you can imagine being reversed in gender, right? I mean, something out of, like, bombshell even.
0: Especially the shoulder rub.
1: Yeah. And, you know, then ultimately when she's going basically to rape him and saying, like, why don't you just lie back and let me take you? I could have had anyone and I chose you. Like, this is the stuff that you can easily imagine being flipped.
0: Yeah, it's aggressive and very unpleasant to
1: watch. It's an unsettling scene, and deliberately so. And he says no, we're told later 31 times. He eventually pushes back by taking charge, and sort of at the moment moment before insertion, sees himself in a reflection and is like, nope, I'm leaving. And she gets really mad and yells at him.
0: Yep, and then he goes home.
1: He goes home, he's been scratched, but he's like hiding it from his wife. And his original plan is to just try to move on until he shows up at work the next day and she is now making a claim against him for sexual harassment.
0: And I think that's the part that isn't, you know, the direct flip. It would be a different form of retaliation. It would be a different form of retaliation, yeah. Up to the actual scene where it's happening feels very much, you know, like a direct gender flip, but this is where the movie acknowledges, like, oh, hmm, the position of women and men in a company is different and not entirely based on Who has
1: power? Well, would you like to hear a bad take from Michael Crichton about this? Uh, Yes, indeed. So this is from that LA Times interview, again about the book, but I think the point still holds. The interviewer says, Seconds before Sanders backs off, he has undressed Johnson and there's quite a bit of heavy breathing. Isn't it hard to view him as a victim? Crichton, Yes, his pants are down around his knees. So how much of a victim are you? And yet, when you turn the situation around, current feminist dogma says absolutely that if it's a man and a woman and that situation occurs and she says no at the very last moment, that's absolutely within her rights. She's a victim throughout the whole encounter. But when you reverse the roles and look at it, you'd say, no, that's not right at all. He's a participant. He has a role. He could have backed out earlier. So what's going on here?
0: God, he's awful.
1: He's a bad dude. But the worst part is this was... This was
0: the majority opinion at the time.
1: Right. Crichton believes that his audience will go,
0: hmm, interesting point. I mean, this is the kind of thing, like, that's getting published in the Times of The Atlantic. Like, has PC culture gone too far? Can you even (laughs) do a
1: date rape? And I think it's just worth letting uh, Michael Crichton's horrible words speak for themselves occasionally. (laughs) Like I said, this interview is worth a a horrifying read.
0: I feel like it would be well followed up with the You're Wrong About episode about the political correctness, moral panic of the
1: 90s. So our point number three is really the next time his wife really is involved in something, that's when they come to the mediation. Because the night that he comes home, he doesn't tell his wife about it. He's working to hide his scratches from Demi Moore. He sleeps in a shirt, which he normally doesn't do. He settles in to watch The Apartment with her. So really where she next comes in is with this mediation, where now he and Demi Moore have made counteracting sexual harassment claims, and the company's like, well, can we just sort this out internally?
0: Which is kind of part of Demi Moore's master, question mark, plan.
1: Yeah, her scheme is basically, if she can get him fired over this, fine. She gets him fired over this as revenge. If not, if she's losing, then when he keeps the job, she frames him for her bad decisions to cut costs in manufacturing.
0: And they, at first, try and just offload him to Austin.
1: Right, a satellite office, which, the number one reason he doesn't want to go is because he doesn't want to move his family. Number two, apparently Austin doesn't get stock options. Weird. Yeah, raw deal for the Halt and Catch Fire crew.
0: But the thing I found interesting is they used the fact that he didn't tell his wife as evidence that it was consensual.
1: Yeah. And his wife is coming into this, like, from a pretty interesting perspective. She makes the comment about how he's had sex with the whole phone book. She alludes to this common assumption that he's having sex with Cindy, his assistant. But when she comes into the mediation, she comes in being like, I'm backing my husband 100%. Mr. Sanders, did you tell your wife about your 7 o'clock meeting with Ms. Johnson? I told her I had a meeting and I would be home late. Are you expected to be late? No, but if I got home earlier, my wife would be surprised, pleasantly. So you make it a a rule to lie to your wife? I didn't lie to my wife. When you called your wife, did you tell her that Miss Johnson was a former lover of yours? No. When you got home, did you tell her what happened? No, I was hoping it was going to go away. I'm sorry, you were hoping you'd get away with
0: it? Mr. Heller, you advised not to debunk the illusion that this dispute might be settled amicably it's okay i have no further questions right yeah she is very much the supportive wife at this point
1: yes but gets really upset when she ultimately finds out how far the sexual encounter went
0: they have a fight but she like supports him on the stand the whole time
1: right it's this interesting dance of she's like i'm backing you we're A team for this larger purpose, but, like, what the heck is wrong with you? Which I think, again, is more interesting nuance. Like, I put as a point number four that we might as well talk about here, that for a while, in this work week-long movie, it seems like they're sort of separated. There's one or two exchanges that make it sound like he's not really staying at home.
0: But it's also not made that clear.
1: You told me you didn't have sex I with her. Susan. Well, what about... I did not have sex with her, okay. Oh, well, what is it, Tom? She's trying to quit smoking. Susan, I'm, Susan, I'm telling How you did the you truth. She did it, Susan. That's the whole point. You I went out and saw this woman alone. You had a little wine, a back rub. You kissed, and then this non-sex sex thing. Then you took off her panties. Those are the facts. So what? So what? Those things don't happen unless Susan, the man. I was cornered. What am I supposed to do? You let it happen. I did not let it happen. How could you do that? How could you let that woman I mean, into all how lives? Could, I did not, how could I let her what into the Get this. Ten of her subordinates have suddenly transferred out in the last five years, all men. How's that for a red flag? Can we get hold of them? Yeah, but nobody's going to talk, and we can't subpoena them because this is just a mediation. God damn it.
0: Also, it would have more weight if this movie didn't happen over four days.
1: But, like, there are comments by his lawyer, like, you know, make things right with your wife. There's at the end of the movie when he gets the message from his daughter that's like, Daddy, come home. There's a point where after... A mediation session, he takes his wife to her car, and then he's like, see you later, and she leaves. And there's not really a sense that he means, like, later tonight.
0: I wonder if there's a deleted scene that makes that more clear.
1: I don't know. I I like that it's a little ambiguous. In part because it's such a short timeline. That they're not getting to a point of hashing out, like, our relationship has changed and this is what it looks like. It just feels weird and unsettled.
0: Yeah, that's true. Or at least just shown him sleeping in the office or one night.
1: But ultimately, he is able to prove that it was Demi Moore who assaulted him and not the other way around. And also, he's able to get her fired for gross incompetence.
0: Yeah, because she, for, like, going messes on up the manufacturing. Television. It yeah. was a kind of funny. Like, it was kind of a funny scene where he's publicly shaming her for the Malaysia stuff.
1: It's great. Again, I'm like, how did he get this Malaysian TV file? Like... They didn't have time to FedEx something, so is this, like, again, like, emailed to him?
0: I think it might be a company video that she tried to delete, but didn't. Like, it's a file that company had on hand already.
1: Yeah, I just think, like, all the other files she deleted, he had to have faxed to him from Malaysia. Oh, yeah. So
0: how did they get the video? Eh, yeah, it doesn't really matter. It's a good scene.
1: <laughs> it's just another part of the movie where you're like, I don't know. Uh, maybe he just, like, picked it up in the metaverse.
0: How far we've not gone with virtual reality.
1: And in the movie, point number five, he and his wife seem to be getting back together, as implied by a JPEG emailed from his daughter.
0: I think, yeah, I think it ends happily. It's not really the main focus of the movie.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I think it ends happily, like you said earlier, with the other woman ultimately getting the job and Michael Douglas will be working for her. And he is happy about it. The movie ends happily. The movie does not end with him getting everything he could want. Right, he is still going to have to work for a woman and and rethink how he engages with women.
0: Right, but this woman is nice and says that she wants to work with him.
1: Yeah, there's the other woman, the other uh, department chair, who has the comment at one point about how, like, she studied engineering for eight years. She worked her way to get there. There's no way she's on Demi Moore's side, implying that Demi Moore, like, slept her way to the top, which I don't know that we really have evidence of.
0: Well, she's not good at her job.
1: I suppose that's the argument. Even if that's not how she got there, she is, she is beyond her talent level. Yeah. All right, Mark, where do you feel about the, the romance of Disclosure?
0: I mean, we don't see much of it. So I would believe that she would feel conflicted about the situation, especially with his sexual past, and would kick him out during the mediation while still supporting him on the stand.
1: Right. There'd be messy feelings about it. Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like, is this another 10 out of 10 for Michael Crichton?
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's racking it because I honestly Lest we forget that Congo
1: was a ten out of ten.
0: I think this might be a ten. I like literally can't think of a place to
1: ding it. I'm like slightly a nine just on like I don't know. I don't know. Like so there there are beats of the actual harassment scene that I struggle with, but also like the whole thing of talking about sexual harassment is like in these power situations, it is hard to say no.
0: Yeah. And that, like, you know, even if you say yes, sometimes it's you're still not consenting.
1: Yeah. A point that this movie makes, you know, I think the, the movie in the mediation when the tape is played and they talk about the 31 no's makes a very clear argument to the audience about no meaning no.
0: Right. And the fact that we don't see like a big happ- happy reunion and that he is separated from them, that seems more realistic to me.
1: Yeah. The realism issue is more with the speed of it all. But because there's this merger, the company wants to get it wrapped up quickly.
0: Yeah, this is a movie where they even have a reason for the speed with which the romance happens.
1: I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll call this a congo.
0: Let's call it a congo. Do you think that they're dateable?
1: Um, not Michael Douglas, because he is, like, very casually sexist. Yes. But I think Susan, yeah, Susan seems good.
0: Yeah, I mean, we don't see much of her, but I don't see a reason to say no.
1: Yeah. Do you think they're going to stay together?
0: I don't know. I think they'll patch it up. He seems willing to learn from his mistakes.
1: He does. I think the time that Cindy gets brought in is a real wake-up call for him. Yeah. He seems really shocked. And not shocked in a, like, how dare you say this? More shocked in a, like, oh my god, I didn't realize I was doing this. Right. It's easy to imagine the version where he gets mad. Like, what are you talking about? This is just supposed to be friendly.
0: Right. And then he apologizes to her.
1: Yeah. Who would you date in this movie?
0: I don't know. They're all, like,
1: shitty sexist.
0: Tech bros, evil corporate. It's a lot of bad overlords. People. I'm gonna go
1: with the woman who does take Demi Moore's job at the end. A great answer. I kind of want to go Cindy, who I think seems like a, a nice and friendly person making the best of a weird situation. But she does a tush tap. She does do a tush tap. All right. Yeah, I think you're right. We gotta go with. We gotta go with the new boss lady.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, should this movie be made into a musical?
1: Okay. We should note. That there is a Big Mouth episode that does Disclosure the musical.
0: I was trying to remember which show it was that did it.
1: Yeah. I think the answer is, like, no, this should not be a musical. <laughs> yeah, but I it is funny to think about.
0: It only works if you're doing it for comedy. Right. It works as a work hard or die trying-esque musical in
1: a TV show. Exactly. Uh, this should not be made into a stage musical. No, it, would it should bad. not be would at be Broadway. Bad. It would be bad. For no other reason, really, than that, like, Your climactic scene needs to be musical, and we don't need a song that is a sexual harassment taking place.
0: We also don't need a song of him going through a VR machine.
1: (laughs) That'd be funny to see.
0: That would be the best part of the show. Just like it's the best part of the movie, if
1: you ask me. Because it is... It's the part that I laughed the most. Wild shift in genre. I had fun with it. The magicians at Industrial Light and Magic, they did it again but we will see if we have any fun next week when we watch Garfield, A
0: Tale of Two Kitties.
1: Yes, that's right. We are continuing with our visual effects feasts by going from disclosure to the most recent theatrical Garfield film, Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties. Mark, have you seen Garfield the movie or Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties? I have not. It's another sequel we're entering cold. Yeah, Fiona will be coming back. This is a sequel to our Hot Tub Time Machine 2 episode.
0: Hopefully this is less problematic
1: if there are other sequels that we should go into cold tweeted us with the hashtag do it to it that's hashtag d-o-i-t-t-w-o-i-t hashtag do it to it to tell us which twos we should do
0: not your worst not my best but until then you can follow the show on facebook and twitter at love the love pod and
1: you can email us questions or movie suggestions at love the love pod at gmail.com Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to help other people find the show. Disclose our existence! I hated that.
0: Last question. (laughs) What is the best piece
1: of dating advice we got from Disclosure? Oh, boy. Um, uh, I think just, like, tell your wife when something big goes on. I guess that's not... Is that dating? I don't know.
0: Yeah, I guess, like the key to a happy marriage is to not sexually harass at work come home on time and help take
1: care of your kids sounds good to me until next time i'm a ginger and i'm gay so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance Bye. all right
0: people let's get started who's up first please i'm nick birch and i'm reading for the michael douglas role I'm a family man, not a sexual harasser My boss tried to do me, now my life's a disaster I only let her blow me, I did nothing wrong Wow, very loud, thank you Um, Jessie Glazer, I guess I'll read for the dutiful wife No matter what happens, I'll stay at my station Through scandals and lies and public humiliation Cause standing by her husband is a woman's job What the fuck? Really?